Our sermon tonight comes from Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, and um, I will read verses 1 through 7 tonight. Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear now as I read God's word. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. Her give me, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers and not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. God's word. You know, all Christians are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I think most of us know that hymn. Especially when there are temptations pushing and pulling from every direction. Especially when you turn on the television or when you're driving down the street. You get tugged in by the world when you are in conversations with people as well. It's because of the human makeup. Genesis 6-5 says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Titus 1.15 and 16 to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They deny God by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then Matthew chapter 15 talks about the heart. Matthew 15, 19 says, for out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, 
and slander. Why? Why? Remember that all have fallen when Adam fell in the garden and not one person is exempt. Even Christians are not sinless. Even Christians are not exempt from sin. Even Christians struggle. But for Christians, it's a battle. It's spiritual warfare. It's Christian warfare. As we are called to wage war against the devil, the flesh, and the world. For a maturing Christian, it is hard, even. It is very hard. Because you want to fix your mind on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. You see, that's what Paul commanded in Philippians. You want to show that you love Jesus by keeping his commandments. But you struggle. You get tripped up. You fall. You get back up again. Well, in the passage before us, we read about how God reaches out to his people. We read about how God kindly and lovingly reaches out to the adulterous people whom we know as a whole he has already promised serious tie severing. He reaches out and he reaches out and he reaches out and he reaches out. I don't know if you can see it, but look at his patience. Look at his compassion. And God, yes, God, the God of Israel, is heartbroken. Amongst the adulterous nation of Israel, there are, in fact, those who do remain faithful to God and his covenant. The number is very small, for sure. But there is indeed a remnant that the covenant God preserves for himself and calls his own. And this is, yes, it's in the New Te Old Testament, but this is because of Jesus Christ. God endeavors to reach an adulterous people and bring them back to himself. To let you know the end of the story now, he does. All he has chosen, all whom he has called, all whom he has reached out to, do and will come back to him. See, that's the gospel. As I said when I quoted the hymn, we, you, we, are all prone to wander and leave the God we love. But you know, we can avoid the road of spiritual adultery, or be saved from the ruin of spiritual adultery by seeing just how our God reaches out to an adulterous people. The first thing we see in our text is that the covenant God reaches out by calling. The covenant God reaches out by calling God. 
is reaching out. God is pleading with the adulterous people here. He's serious. He wants people to see and to know how far they have strayed away from him. And he uses means to that end. He uses couriers or messengers to call them back. Verse 1 says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So the Lord, through Hosea, commands one group of people to speak words of encouragement to another group of people. The first group of people have a glorious message to send to the other group. Here in chapter 2, you see a striking reversal of the meanings of the names of Hosea's children. So who is God through Hosea addressing here? They are the children of chapter 1 who were born to Gomer, who were given message names. And they are told to speak to another group of children designated as their brothers and sisters. These couriers or messengers are important as they are gospel proclaimers. And they have brought the good news of what is going to happen. And their brothers and sisters, the nation of Israel, are called out to. And the Lord does this calling by the proclamation of the gospel. Friends, you need to see what is going on because God uses his sign people, the message names. He uses his church. He uses the church as his gospel proclaimers, heralding the good news. And, and this is the good news, that if you are in Christ, that if you obey the command to follow Jesus, you are his people and you will and already have received mercy. You are called God's people because of faith, because of Jesus. You get bogged down in Hosea's book because there's a proclamation of curse after curse after curse. But I want you to see that the central thrust of this verse, verse 1, is indeed encouragement. The future for those called by God, God's true people, is both glorious and secure. You know, it's impossible for people of Hosea's day to do anything to accomplish or prevent anything that God has predicted. It's beyond imagination. But Hosea assures that the day is coming. The day of salvation is coming. And then we read the contents of his plea in verse 2. It says, plea with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And she put away her whoring, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Here, they are to plea with the nation. 
You see, God is seeking a response. The aggrieved, saddened, yes, angry father and husband, the Lord himself, is speaking as a plaintiff in a court, and he moves from accusation to reprimanding here. You see, the reason for the plea is that he says, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. As has been mentioned already, the Lord's relationship with Israel has been cut off because of Israel's harlotry. The last phrase, though, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1 says, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. God is calling out because he wants the relationship restored. Israel transgressed and transgressed and transgressed the covenant, the greatest covenant that God had established. And God wants them back in unswerving, faithful devotion to him and loyalty to his covenant. Israel is on trial for adultery. You know, some theologians want to say that this is the, uh, the divorce court. But you see, divorce is when, it's, when, when your relationship with your wife is severed and you, and you don't want her to come back. What's going on here is that she has whored after the pagan bales. How did this happen? I believe it was an escalation. She probably saw how the neighboring pagan nations asked for blessing from the statue, statues that they made. And if they maybe just put up one of them and begin asking for whatever they needed or wanted, and if they received whatever they wanted, they'd begin to thrust, uh, begin to trust it. And the more they took their eyes away from their God, and the more they put theirs, uh, the more uh, the bells that that they put up that they wanted, the more they would just add more, and they would just add more to the point that they were mixing their worship with God and with with bales and probably less God and more bales eventually. It's not a divorce court here. It is a trial for adultery. It's God saying, pleading with the nation, come back. Realize your, need, your, your, your sin and come back to me. Verse 2 continues that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breast. This can be a parallel construction using synonyms of whoring and adultery, which the nation is wearing or putting on. But it can also describe the actual clothing and makeup and jewelry that Baal worshiping prostitute would wear as she was engaged in her profession. And in my opinion, Hosea uses this vivid language again to paint the picture of just how bad, how far they had fallen away from the covenant with God and into the hands of Baal. 
He wants them to take the first, most basic step of reform. He wants them to change their outward appearance. And from this, they would begin to show a return of their hearts to God. The Lord is pleading with the nation. He is reaching out. He is calling out, yes, God is involved in corrective discipline here. But he also wants them to be restored into a right relationship to him. You know, you see this idea in verse 2 in the New Testament as well. This idea of, of putting away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breast. Remember how Paul told the women to dress and conduct themselves in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10? He says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. See, there's a certain way that prostitutes dressed. There was a certain way that the women of neighboring na pagan nations dressed. There's a certain outward appearance they had. But remember, God's people are called holy to be separated from the world. I'm not here to tell anyone tonight what you can or cannot wear. But what I'm here to tell you is that you should have a sense of respect and modesty. But that last part in 1 Timothy, it, it does say, who profess godliness with good works. How will that be reflected in your life? Because God wants your heart to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your heart's attitude today? Because I think he reaches out from his word. He reaches out to you and he calls out to you and he says, put away all evil that is in your hearts and come back to me. But that's the first thing we see. That God is reaching out to the people in his call, in his plea to the people. The second way God reaches out to an adulterous people is by cautioning, by cautioning. In verses three through five, we see a great warning or admonition, even threat to this people who have turned their back on him for the pagan Baals. After God calls out and pleads with his people, he threatens them. This is real serious here. One commentator says, from accusation to admonition, the discourse now moves directly to a threat, a legal ultimatum. So we start off in verse 3, we see the threat of, of revealing. God is threatening his people that he's going to reveal What's really going on? The people's sin will be laid out in the open. 
You know, there are some secret sins that you might think nobody can see in which you engage in private. But the Lord God sees everything and there is no place that you can run to that you can hide from his spirit. And even those covert sins in which you engage will once be found out and exposed. But that is how God reaches out and saves us from spiritual ruin. All who call on the name of the Savior, for all who call on the name of the Savior and who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyways, let's look at this verse. He says, lest I strip her naked. Whoever thought the Bible was a rated G book, uh, this, this uh, disproves that. In the Old Testament, nakedness symbolizes extreme want. Listen to what Job says about the rebellious. Job says, in, ver in, in Job 24, verse 7, he says, They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. Job 24, 10, They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves. And what about Micah? Micah 1, verse 11, Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zainan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. So, Israel's economic stability and national peace will be no more. Instead, their want and their shame will be exposed. Israel will be made like a wilderness and like a parched land. Her food and her clothing will be taken away. She will be made empty and barren. You know, remember the Israelites once had everything. And now they will be laid to die, exposed. The Lord, her husband, who has provided everything that she needed will now take it all away. He's saying, if you don't use what I have provided for you to honor and worship me, if you are not grateful for the blessings that I have graciously blessed you with, I will take it all away so that you will be left with nothing. David says in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David knows who God is and he gives thanks for God because in God he will lack nothing. The Lord Jesus is indeed the great shepherd of the sheep, the flock, the church. In Christ, with Christ, you will lack nothing. But the people turn their back on him and mix God worship with Baal worship. And so God will strip them bare. God reaches out to a wayward people with a threat of ruin. The threat of revealing. Now the threat of ruin. 
I hope you see the escalation here in our passage. Because it will keep escalating in intensity. He says, I will make her like a parched land and will kill her with thirst. You know, in an arid land, you would expect death by thirst to occur sooner or later. And what we see here is an escalation of God's covenant curses. Exile, then desolation, then drought, then death. This is a severe punishment threatened by God, who is good and who keeps all of his promises. And then look at verse 5 for a minute. Here is the reason again for this calamity that will come upon them. For their mother had played the whore. She who conceived them acted shamefully. The reason for the shameful, lascivious lifestyle it says, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel, again, looked to the bales for their bare necessities of life. All along, it was God who had provided. And so God promises her ruin. Keep in mind before we move on, this case that we read of is a pronouncement on Israel, the northern kingdom, during the time of this prophecy. You need to be constantly reminded of that as you read through the prophecies. That God is eternally faithful to his, his eternal covenant promises. If you profess Christ once upon a time, maybe you were baptized and you take communion, but you prove that you are not a believer, then this is a different story. And God threatens rejection. Just like the New Testament, God's, God will say, I never knew you. Well, in verse 4 of our passage, he repeats what was said earlier on in chapter 2. And here now, what we read of is a generational curse of rejection that he is threatening. He says, upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. You see, the nation will be excluded from God's mercy because they too were born of and are engaged in their mother's illicit acts. You see, in the Baal cult, that's what it's like. The profession of a prostitute would oftentimes be in the family's line, like a family business gets inherited. But also, it's just saying, too, that this is the culture of the Israelites now. The children and the children's children and the children's children. And he isn't threatening rejection to every single child of whoredom. As God, throughout redemptive history, continues to preserve a remnant for himself. And so, though there are those from within the nation that will, in fact, hear and receive and heed the warning of the prophet. 
But as a whole, as a whole, Israel will be rejected by their God. So God goes great lengths to caution, to warn, even threaten Israel for their wantonness. And you too would do well to listen to what he says. Not only do you need constant reminders of God's goodness, at the same time, you need to be reminded of God's righteousness and his justice and heed the warnings of scripture. But know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. Well, thirdly, as we progress through, God reaches out to an adulterous people by confining or restraining them. And that's what we see in verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. The Lord will not block their way and wall up Israel. He will not do that within circumstances from which she could not free herself. He uses a metaphor here, likening the nation to a dumb animal who has the tendency to wander off from his owner. Like a cow or a sheep, Israel is now going to be hedged and walled in. God will do this to restrict her from finding the path that she was accustomed to taking. Because they have abandoned God, they are like a rebellious animal. And God will use their enemy. Those whom the Israelites nonsensically decided to side with, namely the Assyrians. Assyria will dominate the north following Tiglath-Pileser's western campaign in 748 BC. Then they will destroy Samaria in 722 and continue marching on, subjugating other nations as well. Here, what Hosea is predicting is captivity and exile. They are going to be defeated. They are going to be decimated. You know, if you devote your life to empty and meaningless pleasures, and if you neglect the God before whom we will all one day stand, if you continue to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and live for yourself, then you will be left empty. Your life will indeed be meaningless, as the book of Ecclesiastes so clearly describes for us. The language in verse 6 of building up a wall means walling up her wall, which seems redundant, doesn't it? But it points to the fact that ultimately this is the doing of the sovereign Lord. But God in verse 7, actually, in verse 7, we actually see light at the end of the tunnel. In verse 7, we see a glimmering of gospel light. Or do we? It says, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. 
Do you see the confining here too, like the last verse? Uh, she is going to try to continue determinedly seeking the Baals. But the promiscuous wife Israel will be constantly thwarted. It's like when you put a bit and a bridle on a horse. When the horse tries to wander, you pull back the reins. And the filling of the bit, pulling back on the horse's mouth, sends the signal to stop. The Lord is going to pull hard on the reins so that they will not accomplish that for which they have their hearts set after. They will be restrained and will only be then that Israel will be able to recognize that her hope is not, was never in the Baals, but in her Lord. Isn't that how it is with Christian conversion? It's called conversion because there's a change. There's a heart change that is brought about only by God. You are going along with your own life. You are doing what you felt good and pleasing to you. You are chasing after your lovers. But God, the Holy Spirit, stops you in your tracks. All of a sudden, you are going one way. And all of a sudden, the Lord makes you realize that true hope, true love, is in Him alone. And the last part of the verse says, Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was much better for me than now. Well, the word, the word for return in the Bible usually means repent in the sense of returning to the Lord. But I want you to look at the context. She wishes to return to her first husband because she is now denied access to those who, ran after, who she ran after for affairs. So you see the Lord's sovereign interjection into their lives again. It is always far better in a restored relationship with the true God. God will indeed deprive his people severely. Only then will they be driven back to him. Most of his people give up and give in to the enemy. But the true people, his true people, the church, are driven back to him. Yes, there's going to be the proximate result of punishment, discipline for those who belong to him by faith, but there's going to be the ultimate eternal goal that he will indeed accomplish, that his people, the Israel of God, will indeed be reconciled to him and will be ruled by one ruler, Jesus Christ. How can you truly understand and appreciate the good news that Christ died for sinners if you don't realize and are aware of the bad that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory? Jesus reaches out to his sheep. 
his found and his lost. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you indeed reach out to this wicked generation, to those lost sheep of, that belong to your fold, and you do succeed in calling your own back to yourself. Yes, at times it means drastic measures even threatening, even thirst, even extreme want and shame. But it's all for that purpose of calling your own the true church of the living Christ, the living God. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would make us instruments used by you that we might be able to speak the good news and reach out to a lost and hurting world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.